On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about youth culture. I will be joined by Claire Highland, who heads up the Youth Lab, which is Thinkhouse's Insight Strategy and Planning Division. We're going to talk about the latest findings from their annual research on youth culture in Ireland, how young people feel today, and how they see their future in this country. That's Youth Culture with Claire Highland, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's uh, Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, we're going to talk about um, youth culture and, and youth marketing and young people in Ireland. So um, we are specifically going to talk about a great piece of research that has become an ongoing thing today. It's, it's the sixth year, Claire. I'm oh, sorry, I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by by Claire Highland, um, who who heads up Youth Lab, um, Think Houses Inside Strategy and Planning Division. Claire, thank you for joining me today. Great to be here, Dave. Thank you. You've been on before, so it must have been that bad. You must have thought it was relatively painless. So thanks for coming on again. So, um, but no, as I said, this is an ongoing piece of research, and it's really great because I, I love when we get Irish research um, into the, and I love when it's recurring because you can start to track things over time. So just before we get into it, and there's quite a lot in it, and I don't know how much we'll get through, but before we get into it, can you just quickly give me, tell me a little bit like who who are Thinkhouse, what's the Ute Lab, um, and what's this what's this study about, and um, how big was it, what's the methodology, just to, for context? Yeah, absolutely. So Thinkhouse is a full-service agency so our speciality is rooted in understanding and connecting with youth audiences and by youth I mean 16 to 35 year olds and the services we provide are rooted in that youth insight and that's really helping organizations future proof in terms of showing up relevant to the next generation and that's where we do a lot of transformative work we also have a lot of speciality in terms of planet and sustainability communications and of course our bread and butter is rooted in fame so campaigns marketing activities that connect with the youth audience and indeed with wider audiences and youth culture uncovered is something that the youth lab have spearheaded now for about six years mm-hmm. and it contains the same direction in the sense that it's always asking the big question what it's like to be young today. So that involves exploring the hopes, dreams, fears, challenges, outlooks of young people um, and really trying to identify particular codes of behaviour that separate this group from older cohorts in society. Now what's interesting you spoke about kind of tracking behaviours over time is that there are certain elements that we track year in year out but we also every year take a more nuanced lens in terms of our investigations. For example this year our most recent youth culture uncovered we explored how young people are finding joy and purpose in a permacrisis environment or Mm -hmm. in other words world that's really messed up Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really relevant to the year and to the time that we're living through. Now, the methodology has been consistent since the early days in the sense that that early sense of what direction we take comes from us because we're all the time looking, engaging with young people, observing culture, etc. So we make the call on the lens um, and then we engage culture connectors. So, for example, for this piece of work, we spoke to people like Brezzi, like Sinead Burke. We spoke to Macron Affirma, Youth Ireland, Cortland Nanog, people who run gyms, restaurants, bars, etc. Youth culture journalists, editors. And when we when we kind of get a sense of what they're saying, then we actually speak to young people. So we're okay. speaking to young people. Cork to Donegal, leashed just like across the country. And then 
on the back of that, we actually uh, undertake quant research. So that involves speaking to uh, 516 to 35 year olds. So the research in terms of an online survey is nationally representative. So we get like a real snapshot of, you know, uh, the the real youth view, I guess. Mm. And then all the findings are contextualized in ongoing research that we're doing as a team in terms of social, economic, political drivers that are shaping the world in which young people find themselves today. This year, we we you know we did the research both in Ireland and the UK, but for the purposes of today and, and the audience, I'm going to speak to some of the findings that are more Irish specific in terms of the data points. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, and we can, we can chat at the end where people can find out and if they're interested in finding out about the UK research separately. So it's quite a big piece of research and, and you know, it's not just talking to young people, it's talking to people who are, who have their finger on the pulse in terms of youth culture. So, um, yeah, it's a great, it is a great piece of research and we chatted about it a couple of years before. So, I'm, um, yeah, I'm really interested to see what goes on. Now, one of the key findings this year um, was uncovering a new cultural dynamic, this idea of, as you as you put it, um, checking in, checking out. So talk to me a little bit about that because my understanding was, it, it, it sounded a little bit like it's all or nothing. We're all in on something. We love it. We're into it in a big way. Or else, if we're not, we're just we've checked out. We've given up on it because it's pointless. Is that is that the case, or is it what's going on with that? Yeah. Well, I guess just to remind ourselves in terms of that context of the world that young people find themselves in. So, permacrisis is essentially speaking to a sustained period of uncertainty. And um, what happens in a sustained period of uncertainty is that people start to react and actually react in different ways. So people um, adapt in terms of, I guess, their own personal situation, particular impacts that maybe are directly affecting them. And they can also react and, and adapt based on just their general state of mind, the energy levels they have at any one time. And what we found very early on, both, I guess, in speaking to young people and then again in, in the data was that we saw real fluidity in terms of the spectrum of behaviors. So this idea of young people bouncing from different and often contradictory behaviors um, that reflect really where they're putting their energy uh, in to gain a sense of control in their lives and to create joy and purpose in ways that really matter to them. So to your point there about, you know, is it all or nothing? It's actually, it's not about absolutes in the sense that young people are only behaving in black and white ways. It's actually that they're behaving in black, white and multiple gray ways in between. So yes, maybe checking into life or checking into something where you're really giving your it all in terms of your energy and, and mm-hmm. attention, but equally kind of behaving in a completely opposite way. And that can be either by intention or because you have no other choice. And I think a good way of understanding this is through the lens of meme culture. So some of your viewers and yourself, Dave, might be familiar with that meme where it presents a picture of me. So me, the individual, doing a very certain behavior. And then alongside that is me, also me, doing the complete opposite. And mm. that's almost what we're speaking to. So any one person can, um, at any one time, kind of adapt a particular behavior along this spectrum of kind of leaning into life, trying to take control of your everyday and finding purpose and, and joy for yourself. So it's definitely not a case of all or nothing. Mm, there's okay. a lot of things that are happening there's too. A, there's a lot. There's a lot in the middle. Um, on one hand, when you think of, when you think about you young people, and you know, we'll get into some of the, the the specific numbers around how what they feel about government and that kind of stuff. Like the youth 
in every country, in every society, they've always rebelled against establishment and against kind of the, the ruling classes. And you've seen it quite a lot. But is there a genuine concern today that young people do not like feel well represented by by those in charge of government today? So I did a bit of prep for this. And, and I noticed anyway, this came up about two, three years ago when I was doing a podcast on on general kind of diversity. Um, and I came up then and was going like, the doll we know it's predominantly middle-aged white male domain. So the average age of a serving politician in Ireland is 49. And when you think about that, it means for every 30-year-old, there's a 68-year-old too. So, and I read that only 2% of TDs elected in 2020 were in their 20s. So it kind of seems to be a, a real problem that our government doesn't, and that's what a government is supposed to be, right? A government is supposed to represent a modern day society. And if if the if the composition of that government is unreflective of a modern day society, well then, a lot of people, not just young people, a lot of people are going to feel that 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 they're kind of left out. Now, is it, is it different? Do you see this as being different? Because that's a kind of recurring problem that young people may not feel that the government, like my parents don't get me type thing, you know, with teenagers. So is is it a real problem that the, that young people genuinely feel that the ruling class have abandoned them? And is that true? And, and is, do they feel it badly? And do they feel it worse than maybe you found in other um, years? So look, a stat that really struck me and the team from our research is that only 15% of those that we surveyed, so the 500 young people, said that they felt that there was someone who looked like them and understood them in government leadership. So I think there's one thing about the diversity in terms of feeling like someone looks like you, whether that's kind of, you know, age, background, but actually mm. understands you you know, takes it to a whole other level. Mm. Um, similarly, we heard that only 16% said that they that they claimed to believe that um, that they could trust in the state to act, actively govern in their best interest. And a whopping 63% disagreed with that statement. And wow. that, interestingly enough, is since our last uh, Youth Culture Uncovered, where it was 49% who said that they didn't trust in the state to actively govern in their best interest. And sadly, 55% agreeing with this claim that society is run by the old for the old. Yeah. So what we're seeing and what we're hearing in terms of the conversations that we're having with young people is that they're really looking to those in power to take action that, that is way beyond the short-term cycle in the sense of kind of the short-term news cycle, the election cycle, the commercial cycle. And overall, there is a sense that the action that, that is needed is simply just not being taken. And certainly when you consider the emergency scenario in terms of young people's mental health, in terms of affordable and accessible housing, the pace of action is so slow mm. that we're seeing real frustrations bubble up amongst young people and actually anger with that as well. Um, you know, and I've heard time and time again from conversations with young people that they feel there's so many levels of barriers that are just put in place to effectively make it impossible that for them to have physical and financial autonomy where they can actually grow into independent adults. So there's a sense of like, we're working hard, we do know all we can, but to what avail essentially. Mm, yeah. um, and like there is multiple initiatives that the government's undertaking, I think, to try to listen to young people, to try to connect and engage. I think the reality is, is that those efforts are just falling dramatically short of what's needed. So from a young person's perspective, the commitment to change is just not there, um, um, you know, and, and again, what we're seeing is this sense of young people feeling that they're just not being taken care of mm. in their own country of of citizenship. Yeah, and 
I, 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 I think we were on before, when you were on before we talked about it, it's like I feel, I really feel for young people like the pandemic, you know, a bit of an adjustment for me, but I had stuff going on at home. I had a young kid at the time who was like, you know, two or something. I was, it, it wasn't bad. My disruption wasn't that bad, but I really, I really felt for young people and older people who were really badly hit by it. And, and we're probably seeing a lot of that because people in your survey at the younger end of it are probably, you know, post post pandemic, they feel like if you've lost two years of your life and you're 18, you know, you've lost years 16, 17 and a bit of 18, that's, they're not coming back and that they're your formative years. So I, do, I genuinely do feel um, that, the, that the impact weighed far heavier on certain groups of people. Um, there was one thing in terms of class that I think, and I, and I picked up and I think a, a couple of the news outlets picked up on it. Um, you, you talked about the emergence of a new working class. Can you talk to me a little bit about that for a second and explain it to me? Yeah, I think this is fascinating in the sense of just political and social from society perspective. So like other capitalist democracies, which Ireland is, Ireland has structurally transformed since the 1960s in the sense that it's shifted from an industrial to a knowledge-based society. So Ireland today, relative to other OCD, knowledge-based societies, has actually the second highest number of young people, so particularly 25 to 34-year-olds with a third-level degree. So that's coming in second place just to Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. And if you look back historically in terms of the interrelationship between class, education and wealth, third-level education automatically correlated with earning high incomes and almost guaranteed home ownership and wealth accumulation. But for today's young adults in Ireland, that's not happening. So you can have a third-level degree, you can be highly educated, you can even have a good job, but that isn't necessarily translating into high incomes and high prospects. Uh, and particularly that prospect of home ownership is really out of sight for many of this cohort. So now what we're seeing and what some economics uh, economists are referring to is indeed this new social class called a new working class within the knowledge base. Point earlier about you know politicians in 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 power today. I think it's fitting that particularly in this week when there's so much conversation about you know rent um, rental situations and evictions coming down the line. That you know we have so many politicians that are themselves not just homeowners but actually landlords. Yeah. And then you're talking again about a whole cohort of people that might never actually own a home. And a report that shocked me, honestly, to the core last year was a report from the ESRI that highlighted that in all the, I guess, the future scenario plannings that they were doing, they kept landing on, on this space that the likelihood would be that for today's 25 to 34-year-olds, that when it comes to an age of pension, and, and who knows you know, if there will even be an age of, of pension, but when it comes to retirement, the likelihood is that only one in two will actually be a homeowner. Wow. And so that, again, looking into the future has massive implications because if you don't own a home when you retire, you automatically have more expensive. Yeah, yeah. Relate that to people's ability even now to pay into pensions. We're going to see massive like poverty issues for today's young people, you know, potentially 40, 50 years time. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I got, you know, and you'll know this as well. Um, yeah, you know, I, I heard Danny Danny McCoy from IVEC talking, and he's saying he, the, the economy's great, like the economy's fine, relatively speaking, we are flying. Um but 
it does it certain people are doing well and it doesn't feel like that trickles down to everybody and and while we're doing well and there's no recession you know a, a macro level with no recession on a micro level thing for a lot of people it feels like there's a recession um and it's quite you know, if people feel that disillusion, so like when I came to work in age, um, it was hard to get a job in the industry, but I got into the industry, but there was loads of jobs shortly after and it, be, it became like, it was easy to get a job. Your prospects would be good. Um, you know, it, it, there was more jobs than people in, in, in certain, certainly in our industry. And that was the case. It's hard to get talent. Um, and then Google and Facebook come in and again, there's a huge kind of, it, it's an employee's market. So, but like, I remember even going back when too young to get a job but in the eighties, it was a grim time and young, particularly for young people, there was like, saw no future and mass um, emigration. What, are we in danger of it? Because the, the, the implication of that is that we obviously, apart from lots of things, we have it, we, 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 we lose our good, our, our good um, qualified brain drain, ultimately our, our good qualified young people. So uh, is, are we looking at that type of situation again? I know it might be too early to just say that, but it, could we be at the start of that where we're seeing a mass exit of young people or, or how do they, how do people feel about it? Are they, are we that bad at the moment? Well, I think firstly, just to say in terms of what was driving people to emigrate in the 80s and in the early 2000s, it wasn't the perceived back to getting a job. So there weren't jobs in Ireland. Now, currently in Ireland, um, we have more jobs than we can fill. In fact, since 2000, the employment rate in Ireland has um, the rise and it reached a peak of 73.5% in the second quarter of 2021, or sorry, 2022. Now, I know obviously there's some sectorial job losses at the moment in terms of, of tech losses where there was overhiring in that particular mm. sector, but overall, there are jobs to be had for young people in Ireland. So that begs the question, well, why are they then leaving? Mm. And in reality, rooted in the pursuit of a better quality of life and that again is connected to home ownership or just general like affordability in terms of you know getting on on a day-to-day -day basis um, and from the research we had one and two say that they don't believe that Ireland offers them the greatest opportunity for a happy life right a similar number 53 percent said that they don't believe that Ireland offers them the greatest opportunity for a successful life and one and two, and this speaks to your, your brain uh, drain point, Dave, is that one and two say that they feel they've no other choice but to go abroad for better opportunities. Hmm. Now, I do want to say that that narrative around feeling like you're going to immigrate or that you have to go abroad versus actually doing it are two very distinct and, and different things. And I, you know, did the due diligence of kind of reaching out to the CSO and really trying to go like, is this actually happening? Because we've reported on it this year. It came out again in our in our previous youth culture and cover. I've seen the National Youth Council and other bodies like speak to this as well. And in actuality, it's not yet really playing out in terms of the numbers. So essentially, since emigration peaked in 2012, there's been a steady decline in terms of total immigration figures year and year to 2019. Now, there has been some increase in the last couple of years, um, but, you know, we'd have to wait for another year or two to really see if it's an upward trend. Mm. Um, even in terms of those numbers, in terms of those small increases, it's not like you're seeing tens of thousands of extra people, you know, it's actually, you know, quite small in terms right. of, you know, 2022, there was, there was 2,000, or sorry, 28,325 to 44 year olds who left uh, and 17,515 to 24 year olds. So, you know, you're talking about less than 60,000 right, people yeah, in terms yeah. of under 44. 
And I think it's also worth remembering that, um, you know, a lot of people are coming into Ireland now. So Ireland is actually seen as a destination. Um, you know, you think of those that have fled, unfortunately, from the Ukraine. You think of climate injustice and the challenges that so many people are having in their own countries. And they're looking to Ireland as a democracy, to, in a, to Ireland as a place that has largely, you know, an educated population, a decent population, a generous population. So I think what we're likely to maybe see is just a change in the makeup of actual young people in years to come. So we may see some of our highly educated young Irish people leaving country, but equally we might see, you know, a mix of other people right. coming into country but mm. it's still to play in terms of how it all i think bears out mm, it's definitely something to keep an eye on you and you'll probably see that come come through each year um given given the fact that you know and i kind of joked about it earlier on saying you know it's the eternal problem of youth is that you know people don't just understand me you know you don't like your parents don't get me you don't know what it's like to be young and 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 it, it always it's kind of it's the it's the the constant um soundtrack to a life for young people that that older people don't get them so there is a bit of that but how how much do you think the pandemic impacted or or kind of the, the scar tissue of the pandemic are people mm. are we seeing just kind of um a lot a lot of that thing compounded for younger people just given the, the time in which we are and I'm still relatively fresh in in the memory covid and particularly if you're a younger person so do you think covid is, has given has cuz inflated those figures or um, kind of poured some fuel on, on the flames of that feeling that they have and not feeling about. They've just they just feel worse because of um. So it may kind of bed down a little bit, or is, was it? Has it not really been too too further impacted by COVID? Is it is it is COVID an excuse? It's just you know um we could we could we could hide behind COVID and say that explains it, but really it's not that the feelings run far deeper. Well, I think the general consensus in terms of those who fared west worse during the pandemic were. That those went in in a vulnerable state actually came out or coming out the other end in even more vulnerable state. So yeah. certainly from a young person's perspective, um, when it comes to health, I think the impact of COVID has really borne in terms of young people. So again, older generations may have suffered from you know that fear in terms of their own physical health, and of course there was loneliness, there was isolation for for all of us. But when you think of being, as you said earlier, a seventeen-year-old or an eighteen-year-old, right? you know think of what happens in one year when you're at that stage of your life yeah. you know, maybe you're doing your leadership major milestone you're going to death maybe you're you know you're going away with your friends for the first time without your parents you're, you're going to set yourself up uh you know to go to college so all these things that radically taken from young people has created like a huge sense of of loss so I think what we're seeing now in, in some ways, and this is really positive, is, you know, young people trying to make up for lost time, get out, get active, kind of, you know, create new memories. But of course, there's still a lot of young people that are really struggling in terms of getting out there, um, particularly when friendship circles really closed in. Yeah. Uh, people were became had to become almost more reliant on technology because they they physically couldn't actually you know meet other people and we're hearing now a lot of kind of interviews and conversations with parents as well that you know anxiety is such a major issue for young people so you know parents saying that they have teenage kids who don't want to get out of their bedroom who don't want to go right, to school yeah. you know it's a sense of kind of avoidance there um, and that speaks to a bigger longer term trajectory in terms of loneliness and this mm. idea of a lone 
epidemic where you know young people are not meeting up in person in the same way that they were decades ago and mm-hmm. so much of that is correlated to, to phone usage and, and and phone accessibility and there's some incredibly interesting research from the states i say incredibly interesting but also like horrifying in some ways so there's a professor called uh, jean tengway who's a professor of psychology and San Diego University, and we've referenced his his work on previous youth culture uncovers, but he has identified that the number of teens get together with their friends nearly every day dropped by more than 40% from 2000 to 2015. So note that was before the pandemic actually happened. Now, and while that is US research, you know, it speaks to Ireland as a similar kind of population in the context of being, you know, uh, a knowledge-based society, uh, being you know a wealthy, industrialized Western nation. So the impact of all that is playing out in terms of young people's like depression, in terms sadly of of suicide skyrocketing. Uh, I know you know we spoke to Ian Power from from Spun Out and numerous youth culture covered work as well. You know he's saying that they're getting four thousand calls and messages every month. A fifth of those. But they're looking at suicide calls wow. um, and, and speaking to, I guess, the peak onset of mental health, typically between the ages of 15 and, and 25. Um, and we we identified a number of years ago, actually, that when we asked young people themselves on this topic of feeling like they were going through a, a crisis, that they said that you know, that time of crisis was largely in their early 20s. Right. Um, so again... These issues were there before the pandemic, but they've certainly become compounded now. And right. I guess our challenge at a society level is not to do a huge injustice to young people and actually try to help and support them. Hmm. So just to fit your question about is it around you know older people not understanding young people? I think it is actually something different. Hmm. Uh, and I think young people feeling that older people just don't care enough. Uh, and I think from a societal perspective, if we have a young generation who feel they're not being cared for, that they're not being taken for, I think that that's a really worrying situation for us as a country to be in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I hope anyone listening in a position of power right now uh, can take note. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's up to all of us to do the right thing and the mm. responsible thing of creating a society that, you know, well-being for all is front and centre. Mm. Yeah, and because it, uh, it's it's I mean any kind of um, suicide, it's 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 heartbreaking. Any, but it, it just it's so heartbreaking when you and it, it seems to be uh, the stories you read. It, it's it, it's becoming younger and younger, and, and people seeing you know total despair uh, at such relatively young ages, and you, you just kind of think, Jesus, like how how can that be happening? It's 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 heartbreaking. Um, and you talk there about because I I could um, read into this and go, is it a sense? And I, I'd be totally forgiving of of a young group of people saying like their mood is is really is really low, it's really bad, it's total despair. Um, but you kind of you made a point about you know um, that they're try that they do try and lift themselves out of that. So is that the is that the case? Are, are they kind of in despair or are they kind of trying to proactively trying to lift their mood and and get out? And, and you made the point earlier on about saying now in a post COVID world they may have lost out some some two years and those formative really important years, um, socially defining and, and life defining years, and they're trying to make up. Are they trying to make up for for lost time? Are they trying to you know 
maximize what they can do and, and, and live their best life, if you will? Um, or is it a balance of they, they try and do that, but, but you know, but they're still kind of, are they, are they ultimately de- depressed and in despair or are they trying to lift themselves out? And if they do try and lift themselves out, what are they doing or how are they doing that? How do they go about doing that? Yeah, I think this goes back to my point earlier around the black, white and all the great stuff in between. So mm-hmm. we always start our, our research by asking people to describe to us in three words their own generation and then tell us in their own words how they're feeling. And what became remarkably clear in the early onset of this work was the polarity in terms of the responses. So we got such a wide range of emotions that were in complete kind of contrast to each other. So on one hand, you'd people saying, you know, that they see this generation as being caring, kind and progressive. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, you know, selfish, disengaged, lost, you know, there was yeah. real positive and being ambitious, motivated, opportunistic, and then the polar opposite in terms of being anxious, stuck, lazy. So that that view of their own generation maps out in terms of their own kind of outlook as well, you know, that you see that polarity. Um, but what I think is promising and um, and what makes me feel hopeful at least is that when we ask them particularly about their outlook for the year ahead, recognizing again that it's you know so uncertain, of course, you know, Many spoke about, look, don't know how this year is going to pan out. So 19% saying no idea. But actually, we had large numbers actually saying that they were going to try to focus in on their own life and create a sense of control for themselves. So one in five saying they wanted to sort out their personal shit, get organized for themselves in 2023. 17% saying they want to find balance and just focusing in on, on what they can control. Um, but of course, you also get, you know, a cohort that are like, I'm, I'm just can't cope. Yeah. Or, you know, this year is going to be all about struggling to financially survive. So that came in at about like 11%. So the good news is you have a large cohort saying that, look, Despite all the crazy in the world today, I'm going to try and zone in on my life, focus in on what I can control, find balance in my everyday, create moments of joy for myself. Um, But equally, those margins saying, I just, that would be a luxury to actually be able to kind of find balance. I'm just in survival mode because I have no money or I'm, you know, I'm still struggling from that isolation piece uh, in terms of the impacts of COVID. Um, But to speak to, I guess, how they're creating um, joy for themselves, travel and adventure came out in first place. That typically is number one in terms of, you know, looking back over the last few years, food, all things foodie ranks really high in second place. And then we had in third and fourth was um, sports, wellness, gym, and then being outdoors in in nature, which I think, again, those two things speak to how young people are trying to deal with their own anxieties and manage their health um and then we have binge watching coming in there in in fifth place right. so they're activities but i guess it's also about who are you doing those things with and maybe it's not even about doing things with other people because actually a really interesting theme that emerged from this year was this idea of just hanging out with your friends doing nothing right. is actually fun it's joyful you're yeah. just, you know it's about in the company of others. Um, so, you know, focusing in on those little moments, those micro moments that bring joy, that bring happiness. Um, and, and I think this idea of small keys opening big doors speaks to that thought of, you know, you can do something really small with people you really care about mm. um, and 
that's amazing, you know. Mm. So a real way of humanity coming through there in terms of just that human to human connection, really, really valued by young people. Yeah, joyful and joyful is a is a is a nice word because it's that you can find joy in the small things. Um, so in ter- in terms of their attitudes to things, because again, we'll probably only scratch the surface, but um. We hear a lot about climate change, and um, and I'll, I'll get in. I'll touch on this a little bit more in a second. But and we always hear how the next generation are, or young people generally are, are the, the drivers of change, and and they are because generations going to move on. Every generation kind of changes what 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 was accepted before, and kind of makes their own change. Um, and that's this kind of cycle of life. But how important is climate change at the moment for young people? And and is is it? Like they've a lot, they've a lot on their plate. So I guess it's not the most important thing, but the, it depends on what you read. I mean, climate change is really important for the pla- for the global, for the planet. I read conflicting reports about about you know how important it is. Is it really important for Irish people, young Irish people today? And where does it rank on their list of importance in terms of priorities? Yeah, well, I might just reflect on our youth culture and covered in two thousand and nineteen first, because that one we entitled World War Z. So we explore Gen Z's take on what they believe brands and businesses should be doing to really lead them towards a society that's stronger, healthy, happier, resilient, etc. And it was really around a war in the name of society that's measured more than GDP. So to your point there around, oh, it's all going great at an economic level, but actually break it down. Is it as rosy? Or when you move beyond that, like how, you know, how well are we doing as a nation? Mm. Um, And back then, Gen Z, so, you know, 16 to 24 year olds, they declared climate like the number one issue that was out of 14 different issues from homelessness, mental health, political instability, economic uncertainty. And we fast forward now in terms of 2023 in a perma crisis environment, um, we've seen a shift. So in terms of what they're most concerned about right now, the cost of living crisis comes in number one, followed by the housing crisis, health in third place, followed then by climate. Now, what we have we have to consider here is like that I guess people are dealing with the things that have a more personal or immediate impact on Mm -hmm. them so yes concerned with their ability to financially survive yes of course they're concerned but like do I have a home you know is there security in terms of where I'm going to go to bed tonight etc but when you consider climate in terms of this week alone, and, and what we've heard from the IPCC report, that it is up to all of us in terms of the next six and a half years to really, I guess, take and accelerate our actions so that you know we have impact that will exist and, and kind of map out in terms of thousands of years to come. So I think the reality is, is that while it mightn't be picked in a survey by young people are about it as the number one thing. The reality is climate is, uh, you know, is directly related to our own existence. And when you're a young person, what you realize is that your lifespan is a lot longer maybe than your parents or your grandparents. So you're automatically kind of more invested. Um, so, you know, I think, I think when it comes to climate, it's just like a meta challenge, uh, all of us face and all of us have a responsibility to to try to find you know solutions and take action um at pace mm, yeah because it's it yeah it's one of those, it's it's just a, it's a really interesting point and again I, the, so i've read a lot of research right um yeah and 
you know, climate is a big concern. But when when you think about climate and shopping, so I did. I read a study from a twenty twenty two report from Digital Business Ireland. It said that because we we hear young people are the are the ones that are drivers of change, and they they have high demands of companies and and um, you know ethical and fair trade. And I read that only 17% of 18 to 24 year olds prioritize sustainability when they shop online. So again, it could be macro micro thing. I mean, I, I see this quite a lot. There is a say do gap. Everybody says sustainability is important. And of course it is in a macro level, but then when it, when it comes to the, their individuality and the micro decisions that they make, I don't yeah. know what happens. So there is a saying that I love, which is that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And so what's going on here? Like, is this a research thing that people say, I care, I care, I care, I will only support, but they're not going to, is it what we see in other um, cohorts is they don't want to pay for it. Um, they don't want to be out of pocket for it. And they, uh, what I think they outsource the, the responsibility for being sustainable to everybody else. Is that unfair? What did your research suggest in terms of them taking ownership and actions and actually, you know, funding a sustainable planet themselves did you did it get into that at all or what's your view yeah and i mean again this is only tracking speaking to young people for, for years about and look it's a good question and one that we get asked a lot in terms of that contradiction you know i'm out marching on the street for climate action and then i may be going into pennies and buying a top to yeah. go out and um, I buy my pennies clothes to march in about about fast fashion and I'm marching in, in the t-shirt that costs two quarters. Like, yeah, that type of thing. Yeah. And I guess, look, when we speak about a cohort of people in the case, in this case, young people, we can speak often in such absolute terms. But when you think about what we need to do at a societal level right now, in terms of how every aspect of how we live our life needs to be transformed, like what we're seeing is that certain people at certain times are exhibiting certain behaviors that are really positive. So, for example, you might have a young person who, you know, chooses deliberately not to eat meat or consume dairy. So they're living a really, you know, plant based lifestyle. Um, but maybe, as I said, yeah, they'll go into Penny or they'll buy a leather pair of shoes or whatever. Mm. Um, so a contradiction of, of terms there. And I think one of the things we need to remember is that across the board, people are really struggling from a literacy perspective to really understand the impacts of particular behaviours. So, for example, in that case, um, actually choosing to um, live a plant-based life is one of the most impactful things that you can do. And comparatively speaking, for example, recycling, while it's impactful, is, is a low impact thing. So I think there's a massive piece of work that needs to be done to drive literacy and guide people into the actions that they could take to have the most impact. Mm. But we also need to kind of step back and, and, and not, not put the burden of action just on the shoulders of young people. So, yeah. you know, this is a world where we need to distribute leadership in terms of the actions. So I'm talking government, I'm talking business, I'm talking major institutions, I'm talking all cohorts, sorry, all playing a role in terms of doing the right thing. And if anything, it's the responsibility of businesses to actually make it easier for all of us, not just young people, I guess, to buy into products and services that are affordable, that are accessible. Mm. And I think the other when you think about the change required outside of that major kind of transformation change is, is the culture change that we need to create in, in society. If you think that since the 1950s, we as Irish people really have kind of grown up in this 
consumerist society where, you know, I guess progress, happiness was rooted in this idea of having stuff, you know, national success rooted in the idea of GDP expanding. So this is really the big opportunity that we have. And this is actually where communications, where marketing, where those in the world of advertising have a massive role to play, which is really to tell a new story that is rooted more in connection uh, and less in, in consumption. And I think there's, there's some people that are kind of realizing that um, and, you know, and that's something to, to really embrace and challenge. So myself last year, I, I went back to college and studied um, business sustainability leadership at TU Dublin. And one of the things that I just can't get out of my head is, is that currently in the planet, the amount of stuff that's anthropogenic stuff. So this is kind of stuff that humans have created is now actually more than the amount of living biomass in the world. Wow. So what that says is we have more crap on the planet than we do that's, actually that's, have. Yeah, that's 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 scary. That's that's a really interesting. Yeah. Do we need all this stuff? Does it make us happy? No, we actually know there comes a point in in time that actually more stuff just equates to more unhappiness yeah. and actually depression. This is the job to reappraise what a happy life, what a good life actually means to people. And I think if we can shift culture in a way that people can understand that, then I think, again, from a consumption perspective in terms of making the right or the wrong thing, like there just won't be the same appetite to buy needless things you don't actually need. You mm, know? Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. That's a scary thought. Um and your 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 um your work your report probed how young people were and we talked about earlier on finding kind of fun and and joy and purpose and we talked about some of the fun stuff but tell me what you found out in terms of key drivers for a sense of purpose for young people so um in their life so and what, what have they got to like I've I've an attitude towards work which is you know. I don't know, it's coming from an era that's ingrained me from my parents. Like, you know, you, you're lucky, you've got a good job, you're in a good company, you got to work hard. And it was ever, if I ever got fed up and had a row that they weren't paying me enough money or whatever the case may be, my dad would always say, oh, you know, I think I think you're right. You stick at it, you work hard. And and, and that kind of loyalty to a company um, and and that that's kind of shifty. You see it in younger people that that they're they're not they're not going to be slaves to, to a job, um, and it's on their terms. So there's been changes in attitude in terms of that's only one aspect of life. So it, what gives them purpose? Have you seen that their, their attitudes to different things? What you know, we touched on it: ownership of things, owning a car, owning a house, getting married, um, or even attitudes to certain categories, finance, that kind of stuff. Did 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 your research touch on that and give you any insights in in that area? Yeah, like. First off, just talk about what mean by purpose. So, you know, we're speaking, I guess, to how young people are finding meaning in their lives today, but also, I guess, in the long term, it's more this aspiration of the type of life you want to live and the values that you aspire to. Um, and what was interesting, and this speaks to a point I made earlier around the people you surround yourselves with, that actually the two greatest sources of purpose that young people um, have in their life are actually rooted in people. So your family or your friends. And right. I think friends in particular are so critical for younger people. Um, they're key actually to how people manage 
their health. So if you have larger kind of more relationships, more friendships, you've more people to talk to, you've more interaction, you've more social activities. So friendship is really a facilitator of fun and purpose. And again, it speaks to this idea of it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's who you work, who you're with. So 64% said that my friends are my chosen family, creating a supportive and safe space for me to be my authentic self. And really an appetite post-COVID, I think, for people to make new friendships. So kind of connecting with other like-minded people. And we really see kind of the rise in terms of, of community groups and, and young people wanting to pop, be part of whatever um, community or group that reflects their interests and, and personal passion points. Hmm. So friendship, like people coming up top, travel, learning, um, you know, that again, connected with purpose. So if I'm growing, if I'm learning, uh, if I'm going to other cultures, other countries to kind of see the world through new, through new eyes, then yeah, that is purposeful. That is meaningful to me. Now on the, on the subject of work, I honestly feel like we could have a whole podcast on that because it is just so interesting what's panning out now in terms of the pandemic and the impact that that's had in terms of, I guess, this great reappraisal of, of, of the role that works plays in people's lives. And I guess the big, big shift that we've seen here, and this isn't something that's just nuanced to young people. I mean, I think it's 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 broader than that. And indeed, it's it's much bigger than outside of Ireland. But the aspiration towards a, a better work-life balance. But I think when, when you look at it generationally, we would see millennials, so the 25 kind of to 35 plus, um, often being described as the burnt out generation. So the generation that really gave their whole self and more to work. Um, and now we're seeing younger generations going, hold on a minute, like, do I want that? Yeah. And what's the point, actually? I'm never even going to get a house at the end of it. Um, you know, so I think that's really healthy in terms of kind of seeking and aspiring for a better balance. Um, and globally, too, I have to say, like, it's just phenomenal now this is playing out because I read last week, for example, in Korea, that um, young people stopped a bill going through government, which made it legal to work 16 hours a day, which is just beyond the ridiculous. Wow. So you know, I think that aspiration for a good work-life balance, you know, we, we heard a lot about the four-day working week. I mean, there's certainly a, a young generation that are aspiring towards that. I think we might see it play out, you know, in the very near near term for, for most companies or organizations. But I think that's the direction um, that we're, we're headed towards. Um, but I think different people really viewing work um, in different ways. So we had about one in four saying that you know, work is really about fulfilling my passion and my purpose. But then you had, you know, higher numbers saying work is just about paying the bills in the here and now. So again, it's really circumstantial in terms of, you know, what your own financial situation um, is. Um, and, and finally, just on the subject of work, Dave, you probably heard of terms like quite quitting or quite thriving. So this idea that, you know, people just go and do the bare minimum, put the laptop down at half five, whatever it may be. Um, but what's interesting there in terms of how this kind of manifests into the near future, I think when people go to look for promotions, when they go to kind of move on, take the next step. And of course, we see them jumping from different jobs, different, you know, different companies, and that's just the norm now. Um, I think that's where they're going to start to reappraise themselves. Like, you know, will I get that reward if I'm doing the bare minimum? So, yeah. you know, a lot of that, 
will kind of play out, I think, um, in the near future. Mm. I guess just to speak just to the broader aspect in terms of just general attitudes to work and a lot of those milestones, um, what we're seeing definitely is this idea that that established kind of one one linear way of, of living life today is just gone. That linear life path model mm. is, is fundamentally broken. It doesn't exist for young people anymore. So, you know, if you take the idea of getting married, having children, so many of those things have been pushed out yeah. um, for young people. So I think it's 27 years is the average age now for people to leave their parental home. In terms of getting married, we're seeing that like grooms getting married for the first time is like 35, brides 34, women having their first baby 32. So these have been going up year on year. And things maybe not even happening. So like having children today is is for many people an economic burden that they're not necessarily able or wanting to embrace. And so much of that is connected back to culturally how countries are are set up, you know, what what they value. So like, for example, in in Japan, like it's a massive issue that women, like they're not having children because they don't have um, shared kind of, I guess, support in terms of parenting duty, the emphasis is all about work, high childcare costs, et cetera. So um, again, you know, it really depends how nations set themselves up to, to support a lot of these um, life activities. Mm. Yeah. And you're right. There's a lot in that you could, we could, we could go on it for an hour on that topic alone. Um, I, I want to just kind of change tack a little bit. So your, your report referenced this idea of escaping reality and, and everybody needs to escape reality. So were there particular media channels when you think about or, or things that they use, bringing it back into the world of media for a minute, that they use to, to find inspiration or to find escapism or that kind of thing from, from what, what is quite tough times at the moment? Was anything jumped out that you saw in your research? Yeah, I think just TikTok as, as a channel, I mean, certainly jumping out as an entertainment channel, but also discovery channel. So it, it's not just about kind of getting lost in the, the algorithm. And we hear a lot of people saying that, like, they're aware that they're getting kind of almost locked into this endless cycle of scrolling. Um, but they're also proactively searching in terms of getting inspiration. They're using TikTok as a search tool to find out, you know, where to go on a night out, what to do when they go away on holidays, et cetera. We also saw, I think, gaming, particularly from more of a Gen Z, so kind of a teen, young 20-something kind of really pop out in a more pronounced way, also sharing digital content, more relevant and activity for, for the younger cohort Another channel of real interest is, is, is Discord. So Discord being a platform where users have the ability to really communicate through voice calls or text messages, share files, and do it in a really uh, community-led way. So you have on Discord what's called servers. So, for example, if you're a gamer and you're playing a multi-game uh, online, you can all be in Discord chatting to your friends at the same time. Uh, binge watching as well. So again, you know, going on Netflix, consuming, you know, content um, or indeed like deliberately choosing to watch, I guess, lo-fi content, stuff that is, you know, total escapism and guilty pleasure. That's Love Island or The Last of Us or whatever. Um, But ironically, I think a recognition amongst many young people that actually true escapism is actually getting off your phone, getting off a device, getting away from the screen. 
And when it comes to events, like a hunger for, you know, events that, you know, you could be at a rave in a woods somewhere and no phones are allowed. And that's, mm. that breeds a huge sense of freedom for young people. Like no one's going to be watching me or comparing me to anybody else. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll see more of that type of activity in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Um, so what did you discover in terms of young people's expectations of of brands and say of businesses or companies today. Um, and what, and so when you think about this marketing podcast, so there's people that there's people listening and they, they work for agencies or they work in, for, in brands and marketing. So, and this is a really important audience because it's a disproportionately important audience because, um, a lot of campaigns and brands target the, the younger demographic, um, so it's hugely important. So what are the implications? What do they expect of brands and businesses? And what are the implications for people who who in who are in companies and agencies that want to connect with these people? What should they be thinking about? Yeah, well, we asked directly that very question. What are your expectations of brands? Like what, what are the top three things you're looking for from brands? And the response this year was exactly the same as last year. So I think, you know, there's a clear narrative here in terms of do these simple things uh, and you're doing the right thing. And first off is just delivering trustworthy quality products and services. It sounds so obvious, but again, just a reminder, uh, be honest and transparent as in don't hide behind your your mistakes. So acknowledge them uh, and deliver, I guess, uh, and do business in ways that is ethically responsible. So conduct your business fairly and sustainably. So again, these are just basics that are, how to run a business as much as kind of how to show up as as a brand Mm. so that's kind of the expectations and then i think particularly from our work this year from a marketing perspective to really understand just the fluidity of behaviors again this is an audience that is 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 demonstrating kind of very fluid um behaviors so trying to kind of just put them in one little box trying to say that all young people behave in this one way is not going to help you in the short or the long term. So I guess the challenge for marketeers is really to understand the amount of those behaviours and then determine, you know, what's the space of the behaviour that we want to tap in, that we want to support, to facilitate. Um, you know, when you think of it in terms of the uncertainty, you know, and the highs and the joys that young people do, we want to help support that, create more moments, often micro moments, moments to facilitate that. Mm. Or do we want to show up? or useful ways in terms of, yeah, young people are isolated, they're finding it tough, they're challenged in this way. How, again, can we come in and, and support them? And all that always starts with listening, observing, and an and, and empathetic way of trying to understand young people. Yeah, and you, you mentioned there, so I won't keep you too much longer, you mentioned there companies being, um, you know, honest and transparent. So we, we live in an era of, of cancel culture now, and it's great, like, it's great in one way because... Um, people won't get away with things anymore. There's always, somebody will always, you know, see something and it can be shared and, you know, bad behaviours will be, will be out in the public domain and brands and companies and things will be held accountable. But, you know, there is a kind of a mob mentality that goes on and and a cancel culture. And sometimes, sometimes in in a bid to correct something, you can overcorrect. So I think the question is for younger people and of brands or maybe not brands, any business, things like that. How forgiving, if a company makes a mistake, right? um, And they come out and own it. How forgiving do you think young people are today? Will they hold brands accountable or will they, do you think they're, 
they're okay. Um, you know, if a brand has a misstep here and there, if they mess something up, but they own it and they come out and they say, we made a mistake. Do younger people respect that? Do they forgive and forget? Or will they, you know, is it an era of cancer culture? No, one strike and you're out. Did you get a sense of that? I think in general, like there's an understanding that if a brand or a business makes a mistake, that like they are fallible, just like us humans but it all comes down to how they respond to that mistake. So again, if you think of it in a real basic human to human level, if somebody has a, a moment of reflection, if they acknowledge that they've done wrong, if they apologize, if they if they demonstrate new and better activity that shows that they're trying to amend their ways, then I think there's a case to be made that, yeah, young people can actually um, certainly forgive. Um, but I think if, if those bad behaviors are consistent if there's a frequency of errors or misjudgments if if brand is showing up in ways that are simply just tone deaf and and doing this consistently then on a really practical level are you are you as a person are you going to want to associate yourself with that behavior probably not so again in the short term make a mistake make amends okay i'm willing to forgive you um but in the long term no i'm going to dissociate myself from you Mm. Okay, yeah. I mean, we could have talked for we could have talked for hours and hours about you know some of the points in this. It's really, but it is. I I congratulate you guys on it because and I, I I we've a lot of shared clients. I work with you guys a lot, so um, keep up the good work. It's great. Um, and I you know I look forward to we'll probably have you back on next year to chat about it. So um, it's a great piece of work. So congratulations. Um, now the question, last question, which is an easy one. If anyone's listening, because we only scratch the surface. And by the way, there's a brilliant article in today's Irish Times, which I'd urge people to, to read. It's it's kind of, yeah, it just kind of, it, it covers a, a couple of points on it. But if people are listening and they they want to find out more, uh, is, the, is there a full fat version of the report available anywhere? Can they download it anywhere? Where do they find out about it? Um, or who do they get in touch with? And how can they find you if they if they want to do so? <laughs> You can just Google me online. Uh, no, look, uh, yes, we do have a report. It is uh, available uh, to purchase. I think the best way in is to just simply email in terms of hello at Thinkhouse HQ. So HQ is in headquarters.com. Mm-hmm. So hello at Thinkhouse HQ.com. But I would say, just as we've had a really interesting discussion now, I don't think the real value is simply just getting a report on your desk. I actually think it is engaging with myself and the team to actually show up, present and have these nuanced conversations because the institutional knowledge that exists within our brains is significant. Mm. Uh, And we find that when we have conversations, we unlock so much more. So I'd love the opportunity to maybe present to um, some brands or businesses uh, and share um, such of the knowledge we have. Um, But of course, if that doesn't work yet, we're more than happy to share um, the presentation. Yeah, great. Well, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, if anyone is listening, uh, as Claire said, you get hello at thinkhousehq.com. So, um, yeah, and if anybody wants to get in touch, please do so because, yeah, it's it's great. And it's, it's really important that we, you know, that we... we 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 do this research and that we we learn from these type of things as, as brands. So I wish you the best of luck with it. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And thanks to our partners in Irish Science Media Solutions. If you like this episode, why not listen back to any of our previous 92 episodes? You'll find them by typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Thanks to Andrea and Sound and Kira on Marketing and 
until next time stay safe and if you know any young people have some empathy reach out to them see how they're doing check in with them and don't be so hard on them and cut them a break um, because they're struggling at the moment so until next time stay safe thanks bye The Inside Marketing Podcast brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions <laughs>